0: As a fellow Border Terrier owner, I knew my conversation with Henrietta, founder of Lily's Kitchen, would be a meeting of minds. A born entrepreneur, Henrietta started and sold a number of businesses before founding Lily's Kitchen, which now sells 50 million dog and cat meals a year. I travelled to her amazing offices in Hampstead with countless dogs walking around and even one snoring on the desk. It was a privilege to speak to Henrietta who recounted her happy childhood before a tragic series of unexpected events that would turn her life upside down. But it was her terrible loss that became her fuel through her extraordinary life. A life filled with passion, purpose and entrepreneurial spirit. This is an episode about everything from disrupting an entire market and being a woman in business to money and doing good in the world. But ultimately, this conversation is about triumph over adversity and how love for animals and humans. Can conquer all.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring
0: your frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly Co. I'm the UK Ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement and in my view the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi Henrietta, I finally meet you and I have just really dreamt about this moment because I knew that, A, I would adore you, but also just now stalking you for this podcast, I realise you're going to blush firstly that you're frigging amazing. And we both have borders. Your border, Terry Lily, was the inspiration behind the business. And of course, Mr. Mudley, my border, is a huge fan of your food. But you have the most wonderful career in business spanning over 30 years. And I'm sure you have all the battle scars. So I just can't wait to chat to you today. And thank you for being my guest
1: on this podcast. Oh, thank you, Holly. You're so enthusiastic. I love it. I'm I'm all tinkling with your enthusiasm. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. She thinks all these things about me. Thank you. Oh, oh, well, you're very Very welcome.
0: So, first of all, could you tell us a bit about your childhood
1: growing up? What were you like as a child and what were your passions? Gosh, well, I was a very precocious child, I think. Um, I was adored by my uh, mother and father, which I know most children are adored by their parents. But I just remember just having these lovely dresses and being really loved and taken care of and my father holding my hand down the street and me thinking, you know, wow, I'm, you know, my dad's amazing, I'm amazing. Um, and just having these real moments of, of feeling like I was, you know, really loved and, 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 uh, and uh, taken care of. But I did have quite a checkered childhood. So I was born in Beirut and uh, I have a younger brother. And we were evacuated during the war. We moved to the UK because my mother was British and my father was Lebanese. And um, soon after we moved over, um, unfortunately, my mother uh, was in a car crash, um, and I was eleven, and she uh, she she died instantly. Um, and the following year, my father died um, of brain cancer. So it was really it was a childhood in two, uh, in really two stages. Um, one that was uh, all f- happy and fabulous and sort of apple my parents' eye, and then the other half really marred by a lot of very tragic events in a, in a short period of time.
0: Gosh, that is actually just quite unbelievable that you went through so much um, at such a young age. You were twelve when your father passed away. Yes. Um, how did that? shape your life losing these two people who adored you so close together and at such a young age
1: well it's you know i i always say i wouldn't be the person i am now if, if, if that hadn't happened because you know it was such a double shock and plus you know being a refugee leaving you know leaving you know the country i was born and behind and and, and being in a new country I had a choice, really. I had... It was a sink or swim situation. I think, you know, for the first sort of 18 months after my dad died, I was really quite a lost, lost person. Um, And I just remember feeling, you know, this sort of weird mixture of obviously devastated but also angry and kind of ashamed in some way. I sort of... You know, at school, everybody would stop me, you know, as I was going about my day. Are you you OK? You can always talk to me if you want to and there was no bereavement counseling or anything like that in those days and actually people asking you you know you can always talk to me wasn't helpful because i could just never kind of get on with my with my with my time and my day at school and felt you know i just felt like i was an odd person who you know everybody prayed for me in, in assembly for example which is lovely but you know i just wanted to kind of hide away and not and not stand out
0: and did it was it your grandparents that looked after you or who? So, um, how did you move forward?
1: Um, so we were adopted by my mother's brother, uh, my uncle, and his wife, uh, and they had a, uh, two children too. So you know, we ended up being a, a family of, of four children. But it's there's the Oscar Wilde thing where you know losing one parent is tragic, losing two is careless, and that's not me making light of it. But it was such an awful thing to happen that I really, you know, I. I At some point in my teenage years, I just had to stop being the victim about it and go, look, I have to be a survivor. I am a survivor. Anything's possible. Nothing terrible like this is ever going to happen to me again. And actually, that really gave me blank canvas in life because I just, you know, I could just go for it. You know, I applied to Cambridge thinking, of course, they're never going to take me in, but I had nothing to lose. And I'm a businesswoman because of being able to sort of go, right, let's have a go. Let's see what happens and not being worried about the Because you almost dealt with what is the worst that could ever happen.
0: Exactly. It happened to you. You were obviously highly intelligent, driven and had a passion for wanting to help people. You went to Talbot Heath All Girls School and then went on to study at Cambridge University. What was that time like studying? And did you think that you were, did you have that entrepreneurial spirit then? So this sort of, you know,
1: what is the worst that can happen? That was brewing in you, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, I love challenging the status quo as well. That's very much part of my DNA. And so I organised various stalls and things at school and sold bits and pieces, homemade cakes and stuff like that. But uh, when I went to college, um, I actually set up a few businesses to keep me going. I did everything from print T-shirts to make teddy bears. I used to go to Laura Ashley and buy literally hundreds of metres of upholstery fabric and make cravats and waistcoats and sell them to the local shops kind the kind of thing that would just sort of just give me some money to (laughs) to keep me going in my student days
0: so yeah so it was it was it was literally brewing so you you had a teddy bear company you also went into
1: publishing is that right yes so um when I graduated I went into publishing and um I have an aunt who has down syndrome and she's just amazing she's she's 67 now but you know, at the time, she was working in a makeup company, and she she then stopped working, and and it just really made me realise that actually people with disabilities just don't have the opportunities that, um, that 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 were possible. And I and it really spurred me on to set up a magazine for disabled students and graduates, um, which I did. That was the first magazine that, that 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 I launched, and it was a you know lovely glossy, colourful magazine. And you know, the disabilities officers at universities were saying. This is amazing, you know. Usually, it's a photocopied piece of paper with some really sort of, you know, crappy jobs on it. But these are these are graduate jobs. I'm like, well, yes, of course. If you have a disability, you can get yourself through university. Then, you know, you can do you any can do job, anything. anything. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, wow. So, yes.
1: Yeah, so, and then and then so I set up other magazines, all for students and school leavers and graduates.
0: I mean. I can't even, I, I'm so excited about this interview. You are, <laughs> yeah, you're the embodiment of just that that entrepreneurial spirit, that thing that just some people just have. They just didn't probably think much of it that you were making all these businesses or what you were doing. But, that you know, when you now look back, you know it's a bit special. So in the early 2000s, you had a light bulb moment and you had sold your recruitment publishing company and had just started a three-year course in garden design mm. growing your own vegetables aiming to be self-sufficient then suddenly you got this inspiration for Lily's Kitchen can you tell us about that that moment that story yes I'd sold my
1: publishing company um I had how old were you when you sold your publishing oh, company that's like a question I think I must have been about 29 yeah yeah okay. 29 right. 30 something like yeah. that I had actually also launched a dot-com in that period too so I raised five million dollars to launch Queercompany. dot um, and when all the dot coms are being launched around that nineteen yes, ninety nine, yes, two thousand, yes, yes, that fantastic moment. I didn't sell that, unfortunately. That company went bust, as as you know, it was devastating at the time. But. St- of dot coms that's what happened to And what did that dot com do? It was a gay community portal you know nobody would blink an eyelid now but at the time we had huge posters around the UK and in London and and Metro newspaper just launched and we took out the outside cover to put a picture of two women in bed together um, saying thank God for women and others that said you know sorry mum no white wedding and you know it was brilliant. We had just so many complaints sent to the Advertising standards authority, but but you know they they weren't upheld. Luckily, you know people were writing, why well, it's disgusting. We have to walk a different way home from school because so that my children don't have to look at this poster. <laughs>
0: it's amazing how things have moved on.
1: <laughs> it so, is amazing, both in disability actually and and okay, yeah, yeah right. it's such it a good time to be
0: alive, isn't it? Yeah. So go on. So you sold. That business and the Lily's Kitchen story, how so did that begin? So the Lily's
1: begin? Kitchen story. So, you know, so I have one daughter and uh, I, can, I was married previously and I, there wasn't the likelihood of me having another child. And I thought, I you know, it just doesn't feel right just having one child. I, I need a dog. So my brother is a vet and I said to him, look, you know, I don't really know anything about dogs. What kind of dog do you think I should get? And uh, so we were chatting and he said, you know, border terries are best, as you know. They are. They are indeed. <laughs> so we picked out Lily and she came home with us. And, you know, we were just delighted. You know, life, family life was completely transformed. and My daughter really had a, a sibling in Lily. After about a year or so, she started to get really quite ill um, and, just lots of sore patches you know her fur was falling out she was forever itching her ears licking her paws she just didn't seem right and I said to my brother look I think there's something wrong with her can you take a look and he would give me some cream which I would put on and then the minute I stopped putting the cream on the whole everything would just come back again anyway and then she just started becoming really fussy about her food and so I tried all kinds of foods until, you know, she just one day she would just refuse to eat. And she, I put the food out in her bowl and she just would back away from the bowl, which you can imagine for a dog. It's very unusual for a dog to do that. And I just thought, God, what is going on? So a couple of days like that went past. And then I just thought, I, I'm going to try and cook for her and see what happens. So I cooked for her and. She had it all up and I was just like, thank God, she's actually eaten because you can't force a dog to eat. <laughs> you know, I, I cooked for her for another, you know, couple of weeks, you know, which was a pain, frankly, because you know, I was busy working, my daughter, all my other responsibilities. And, but I saw that she had got better. So after two weeks, her fur literally started growing and all the redness that was all in her ears and her body was clearing up. And so I told my brother and I said, look, could it be the food? And i he's like, no, you're not that much of a good cook. <laughs> and um, and I said, no, no, but what I've been feeding her previously, do you think there's, there's something wrong with it? And he said, no, oh, it's just all the same stuff. Um, and so I started to investigate what actually went into pet food. And I was really so surprised and so horrified by what went in. And, and I felt stupid that I'd been completely duped because, you know, you're buying a tin of dog food. You think that it's got chicken and carrots and all this stuff on the front. And then discovered that, you know, basically all pet food is made from bone meal and oil. You know, you're lucky if you get a bit of rice or a bit of dried peas, but that was it. You know, I was really angry about it because I thought, God, and I felt guilty, you know. Yeah, <laughs> i had yeah. been sort of, you know, making yeah. my own dog ill. So I just thought, look, I, I can't cook myself, for, for Lily, myself forever. I, what I would love is to be able to have a pet food that I could just, pull out of the cupboard and you know trust and know that it was made of really good things and I don't know if you remember but we growing up we had cats but do you did you ever have you know we used to have a separate cupboard for the cat food and a separate spoon and you know it had to all be separate because it was so disgusting (laughs) yeah yeah
0: absolutely
1: and I just thought imagine if you could have pet food that was really lovely that smelled great that was delicious that actually was good for your pet how fantastic would that be and that's you know I just that was it. I knew nothing about it. I had no idea that I was taking on this huge industry, massively complicated to to do it. And it's one of my mantras that, you know, I love um, I love setting up a business around a subject I really don't know anything about because it means that I have complete the sort of 2020 vision. I can just see, you just have a blank canvas, and I can ask the questions and and really come from what could be possible rather than, okay, so this is what the past looked like. Let's do a little tweak because. You know, frankly, what I was doing was outrageous. You know, the tin yeah. was £2.20 because it was full of fresh meat and fresh vegetables and 15 organic herbs, etc. And that was it. So November 2008, we launched.
0: <laughs> it's just unbelievable. You, you you, had your... Because you had also, didn't you, this passion for fresh produce, mm. homegrown vegetables. And I love that story. It just goes to show, really, how you can turn a passion... Granted, you know nothing about the dog food industry or or pet industry, mm. but it was that passion, and it became a unique business because of that. The passion, mm. twenty twenty vision, blank canvas can ask all the stupid questions; it doesn't matter. Yeah. But that's what's going to make it unique. And so many people often come up to me and they say that they'd love to run their own business, but they just simply don't know what they should do. You know, I, I, they, yes. I, they'll sit on the tube and ask me this, and I'm like. I have to get off at the next stop. I I can't work this out right now. But I always say it's about finding what your passions are Mm. and then turning that into Mm. a business. And if you don't know your passions, you have to discover them. I mean, A, just in life, because it makes you happy. But it basically makes that passion and that interest into your everyday life because you, you turn it into a business. So I guess the secret is being curious about everything and being enthusiastic. Would you agree?
1: Yes. I mean, just, you know, challenging the status quo sounds quite lofty but I think curiosity is exactly the right word because if you see something that's affecting you that you feel you want to make a difference to or you're passionate about making a difference to that is all you need, you do not need experience and uh, you know, I, in fact I, I'm always saying, you know, I hate I hate experts because experts will give you all the reasons why you should not do something um, and expertise is a very, uh, way too highly valued commodity not having expertise I think is really helpful when you're starting out because you can do anything anything then is possible because you're really coming from what could the future look like and you bring it into into the now rather than what what's everybody done before and you just create and it's a very creative way of 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 approaching any business what a good piece of advice and also just
0: to add to that you're the customer aren't you so you're you're actually living in the problem that you're seeing (laughs) yes exactly you visualize the future and as you say you draw it back to today so you officially founded your business in 2008 at the Mm. peak of the recession. And I read that you started with 150,000 pounds of your own savings, Mm. which you'd worked 20 years to achieve that pot of money.
1: Wow, that's true. I never thought of it like
0: that. But yes, that is true. (laughs) So I I want to talk more openly actually on this podcast about Mm. money. And I hope it's okay with you. Absolutely. As often finance can be the biggest barrier for people starting Mm. businesses, and it can hold people back especially women. So what were your first steps when starting Lily's Kitchen? How did you know that A, you were going to need that sort of amount of money, Mm. let's say? Um, You knew you were disrupting an entire industry that might be worth a lot of money. So it wasn't going to be a £1,000. But how did you start out and and that risk of taking your savings, your life savings and and Mm. risking on this? Tell me about that relationship
1: between you and money. Okay, I love talking about this aspect because I do find that women especially are really dreadful about talking about money. So we should definitely spend time talking about that. But just to address the earlier question, do you know, I was blindly passionate. I was so determined to make a difference. And I just felt there must be other people like me. And actually, when I did a straw poll, even on my street, I discovered that everybody on the street cooked for their dogs because they didn't trust what was in the supermarkets. And I just thought, oh my God, it's not only me. I spent two years before launching the products for sale, so to speak. And I spoke to all kinds of people who are I respected in, in the pet world. So, you know, conventional vets, homeopaths, uh, herbalists, Kinesiologists, just to get everybody's opinion on what the perfect pet food would look like for cats and for dogs, and just spend loads and loads of time researching. You know, I got more and more and more enthusiastic about the products that that I was going to launch. And when we did launch them, you know, again it was the worst time possible, as you said, November two thousand and eight. And I gave them to local vets and local shops. And I said, look, just, just give them to your customers and, and, you know, we'll hear what the feedback is. And it was terrifying. I just did put my head in my hands at the time and think, how could I have just picked the, literally the worst time to launch an expensive pet food brand? But I did really believe that people could see that the food would make a difference very quickly And also they would equate to the fact that actually a tin of dog food is cheaper than a cappuccino. And maybe, you know, it's worth giving up your daily coffee so that your dog could have a really good meal that was actually really healthy. I just, you know, there was a lot of fingers crossed, I have to say. Um, But, you know, I'm a big believer if you do create a, a really great product that's really founded on good values, then you will come through. And literally within a couple of days, they called up and said, can we buy some? They've come in to buy some more. I think the amount of people who said to me, because I visited about 30 factories and um, kitchens and all sorts of places across Europe, and pretty much all of them said to me, look, we can't make your recipe. We just can't. We've never handled fresh meat. You know, This was the first time fresh meat had been used in pet food, can you believe? And they said, because otherwise, it's all dry otherwise, apart from the oil. And um, they said, well, what we can do is you can put that lovely label of yours on and we can make you food just like all the other horrible food that we make. And you can put your pretty label on. And, you know, if I was a sort of cynical business person thinking, right, I want to get rich quick. That's exactly what they would have done. That is what I would have done. But, you know, I just... it's it's like the fact that we have a customer service team, which we've had from day one. So that, you know, I you know, for the first two years, I was always on the phones as well, picking up calls, just to get the feedback from customers and just to hear people say, wow, thank you so much for bringing out a food that my cat can eat, my dog can eat. And and the improvement in health, I think that's, that's what's so exciting. Amazing.
0: So that money then, so you put that money aside and you said, right, that's what I'm going to do with, yes. uh, you know i'm going to put my life savings into it how did you then go about handling that and and did you risk it all very very quickly
1: no i risked i risked it over a period of about 18 months um so i knew i would need that kind of pot of money because you know as you said it's 96 percent dominated by by the big boys and so i needed i knew i needed enough money to see me through but i just i was happy to take the risk i felt so strongly i i adore lily i knew i know how people love their pets and that actually um if they could see the difference between what a good meal looked like compared to what they would usually been feeding they would you know they they would back the business and, and and buy the product so you've just got to go for it haven't you in terms of if you
0: believe it to your bones, that, that, that this is the right idea. You have just got to go forward, mm. don't you? And so, it's actually quite amazing because you were laughed at, weren't you? Ridiculed for oh, wanting yes. to create a dog food with vegetables, fruit in it, and often you didn't even dare mention that it also contained <laughs> uh, rose hip and milk thistle. <laughs> yes, exactly. um, I can. And this is over ten years ago, so I can only imagine something. You know, the men in the factories. I can only Absolutely. imagine it was all men and it not was, women. Um, and you didn't have social media at the time, did you? And so you've got this new product found on that passion. You already sort of know it's the long game, isn't it, that you were playing there because your whole road was almost doing it. So tell me about those first stockists and building your name out there because Mm. £150,000 is a lot of money it is also nothing mm. in compared to big brand names so yes. you had to use that money wisely what, what where was that sort of was it the first stockist that you got that
1: started to blow it up or was it clever marketing mm. Well, no, it was the first stockists, probably about six shops initially, and then we built up quite quickly. So we had about 200 shops by the end of, you know, the first six months. And it was just Anisha who still works for us, which is great. Oh, that's so great. Her and I just working at my kitchen table, sharing the phone, because we only had one phone, incoming and outgoing calls, you know, and knocking on people's doors. We did all the deliveries. So from day one, I had a website that people could order from directly. So if a shop wasn't going to take it on, then at least we could say to people, you can buy online from from us and so we did all the deliveries ourselves and we had we had one one day very early on we had somebody in Hampstead who ordered 600 tins of our chicken and turkey casserole a famous person who I can't mention I had a tiny car a two-person electric car so we had you can imagine we did about 20 trips to this house piled all the tins outside the front door and then rang the door oh the delivery drivers just had to leave but we'll bring this in for you (laughs) just pretend that we had some big company big company you know just cool.
0: a, and just the founder just happened just to be here just to welcome you to Lily's Kitchen.
1: How fantastic. Um, but yes, it was you know, it is it is a lot of money and I think the but the, the breakthrough moment came for us um because the food was so good. I know it's boring to keep saying that but you know, people would open it and smell it and go, oh, my God, this doesn't even smell like dog food. Um, that was the thing. So we got, we actually got a lot of PR. So we were written about by, you know, well-known journalists in, in prominent columns that really got the word going. So luckily for, for, for me, that, that was just I- invaluable. Because you were doing something different. You,
0: you know, that, that's the other thing to say to people, is that if you do something unique... You, I remember not in the high street. We no. got the press, getting articles in the Times and Telegraph, etc. As a young business, mm. starts to put you really
1: on the mm. map. Mm. Regarding the press, can I just say uh, yeah, some, was, well, some were some were favourable, but we had you know plenty of Daily Mail articles going how ridiculous blueberries and dog food, whatever next but you know and I'd open the paper and go oh my god this is just awful they're just slating us <laughs> but the phone would be ringing off the hook and we'd have hundreds of orders through our website that so day it's like thank you daily mail yes and you know I'd be in tears but the you know we'd be flooded with orders because people would read and think actually yes I want that for my dog I, I want good food for my dog and so um you know so that that was very helpful
0: As you're listening to this episode, I'm so glad you found your way to conversations of inspiration and I hope you've taken some wisdom from it. Keep listening. It gets even better. Every week we explore the highest highs and the lowest of lows of some of the nation's favourite founders, creatives and entrepreneurs as they share their stories with me. Having recorded over 130 episodes, there are so many incredible guests to choose from, every one of them sharing their experiences, advice, and my most anticipated part of each episode, a letter to their younger self. If you're not sure where to start, head to holly.co, where you can browse all our back catalogue by collection. There are buckets of podcasts you can choose from, such as Business as a Force for Good, to Female Founders, or perhaps hearing stories from those with dyslexia. Needless to say, this unique library has changed my life completely, and I'm positive it will have the same effect on you. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration.
1: Tell me, you had Waitrose knock on your door. Is that right? Actually, we did have Waitrose after about, I think, the first year. And I didn't say yes to them at that point. I said no. And I think again, it was, it was, it was an interesting decision because I knew that if I went into a supermarket too quickly, um, it would be, you know, I, I was worried about losing control of the brand. Um, so actually we didn't start going into grocery. Ocado was the first one after about four years. So we really built up the business brick by brick, literally Neat and I on the phone and then I could afford to hire more people. And we, you know, we visited every stockist who wanted to take us on and, you know, buy by, by four years we probably had about 1600 stockists but then we got the Ocado call um, out of the blue oh I I heard you on I think I did something on Sky you know we'd love to see you went in really like them they were very entrepreneurial at the time as as when they are now as as we were and that was actually a big breakthrough for us because I had no experience dealing with grocers no experience of this industry at all and so you know i'm a keen person to make mistakes but i knew i'd be making (laughs) too too many
0: (laughs) make mistakes but not tons
1: of them (laughs) not every single mistake in the book no (laughs) Henrietta. so um so that's yeah i wanted to learn learn the ropes of the cardo which we did and then and then we went into waitrose and now we're pretty much in all supermarkets in all
0: supermarkets Mm. also it's scaling up isn't it fulfilling supermarket orders Mm. can be so difficult i spoke to the wonderful pippa murray founder of pippa nut on this podcast and she said that this is often a barrier for small businesses as you need to invest a huge amount in the stock Mm. to to fulfill the order. So, you know, you you say on the phone, oh, yes, of course I can do that. (laughs) And then panic how you're going to do it. And it's often a huge amount of money. So, it really is a a Mm. consideration point, isn't it? Not Going too fast, too yes. quickly, and
1: you can also well, you have to spend a lot of money when you're in a grocer. So you know, one of the things that people don't realise is that every promotion that's you know every fifty percent third third off, buy one get one free, that's all funded by by you. It's not funded by the supermarket. So not only are you having to stock them, but you know, there's always an intro offer, um, and then some, so suddenly you're getting okay, here's fifty thousand pound order that they've given you, but here's you know a hundred thousand pounds of you know promotion. Support, and promotion and listing fees and other things that can go with it. It doesn't happen all the time, but quite often it does. It
0: does. Like I say, I remember seeing your dog food and I think it's when I just got Mr. Mudley and it stopped me in my tracks and I thought, gosh, this is so clever. Firstly, your packaging design was beautiful and it felt wonderfully organic, but you made the dog as much part of the family as the child. Mm. Um, You were catering to me, the customer, and I remember seeing your Sunday lunch option and then your Christmas dinner (laughs) can of dog food and... I definitely thinking right. Mister Mudley needs to have Christmas lunch. Well, of course he does. You know, but <laughs> well, why have I not been doing this? And I remember being laughed at when, and not in the high street. You know, when we had dog stockings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, and wanting to have in our catalogue, you know, our entire pet section. And of mm. course, ten years later, you know, we have a huge pet demand and pet gifting, etc., as part of not in the high street. But I think as a woman, you can tap into this emotion, this empathy of your customer, mm. and you understand, understand, understand that of course your dog needs to be spoilt at Christmas as much as the other family members can you just tell me about these product innovation um, moments because Mm. it's very very clever and also how that helped with marketing because in a way your product can Mm. be as much as you know four pages in a magazine you know if you get it right
1: Mm. yeah no that's so true I mean I think it goes back to my childhood. I needed to create family. You know, I'd lost my family, and I and, and you know, Lily was so much part of our family. I you know, I, I know she's a dog, but she was she was my family as much as my my daughter or anybody else. And so I was always coming from that point. And I we were the first to do advent calendars for dogs, and now of course there's there everywhere, which is great. Lots of choice. As you say, we did bedtime biscuits, that was uh, we launched with that product, and because you know lily goes to bed jumps into her basket and i want to be able to give her a healthy treat and so you know it's made with chamomile and passion flowers and yogurt and and now it's so much part of people's daily ritual mm. um, or nightly ritual should i say and it's equating those sort of moments that you have with your pet and just being able to sort of think about what product really goes with that and i'm just noticing actually behind you we've got the recovery recipe and we have a lovely card next to it which says feeling poorly so we write a card to our customer if they call in and Say that their dog's not very well, and could they have some recovery recipes until their dog gets better? You know, there's also the hard edge business side of it, which is that you know dog food and cat food was so boring in November 2008. Mm. You know, you would get into a supermarket, and all you would see is rows and rows of pictures of dogs faces with their tongue hanging out every every brand was like that yeah, yeah and it was all just about functionality you know and you know feeding your dog or cat the same thing day in day out there was no romance or fun involved and given how much fun pets <laughs> give us ah. yeah and they are you know we've got snack bars we've got all kinds of things that, because you know they are part of our day-to-day life you know the ups the downs the breakfast the lunches all of it
0: So clever. I know anyone listening, their brains are whirring, you know, because it's, you know, you went in, you saw all the cans, rows and rows of the Mm. same thing, and you just wanted to do something different. So, you know, people need to get out there, don't they? If they're looking for inspiration, see Mm. what is boring. How could pet food Mm. be boring when these animals all in your life and only create fun. So just moving on, you now have a huge following of fans and customers, including lots of celebrities, Ed Sheeran, Fern Cotton, Prince Charles, pretty exciting. And you received a royal warrant from him too. I didn't actually realise
1: you can still get a royal warrant. I know. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, you know, we were (laughs) just so excited. I bet. It's a long process, though. I mean, you you have to be a supplier for five years uh, to the Royal House then it's it's an 18 month process to fill in all the forms and you know and get approval so it's almost like a seven year, year process which yes. is a long time yes but it was so validating for for the team here because you know we are so passionate about what we do and doing it the right way as well not just you know producing a commodity and it, the, the the thing with the royal warrant um, from the prince of wales is that actually it's a very onerous and rigorous process um there are hundreds of forms to fill in because they really vet your business from the inside out. Everything that you do, not just the product. Um, And so to to get the Royal Warrant really is is, a seal of approval. It It is. The bee's knees.
0: (laughs) It is a bee's knees. How cool. And you now sell over 50 million dog and cat meals every year. You are stocked in 22 countries and you have sales of over 70 million pounds a year. This is Pretty cool for a lady who was putting her vegetables into a pot, (laughs) mixing them around, and you know, and Lily was getting better. So it's you. It disrupted an industry. So huge Mm. congratulations! But I think what's very interesting and admirable about your business is how you're also using it as a force for good. You're now certified as a B Corp, so you're using your business as a force for good. Mm. And I know how hard it is, especially for a business your size, stocked in 22 countries, Mm. to actually get that. We've been interviewing a few B Corp businesses on this podcast, Ed Perry, founder of Cook, as I said, Pippa Murray. And we're actually on this very start ourselves at Holly & Co to becoming mm. a B Corp. Um, we just started this month and it is quite complicated to navigate. And we're, we're thinking we might actually work with the guys and create a B Corp guide for small businesses because mm. it, oh, I think- I can it, definitely help you with that. Okay, well, yeah. thank you very much. Can you just tell me why you decided <laughs> to become a B
1: Corp? Yes, I can. Oh gosh. Well it's it's a funny story you know I love I'm passionate about business and I am passionate about making a difference and I just felt the two were just not meeting in the middle um, you know I was working some night and day and then it would be a, a kind of like oh my god you know we've, we haven't done anything, anything charitable let's you know let's let's contact our local charities and do something um, and it was great you know we, we, we've given well, actually now I think we've given over one and a half million meals away which is a lot but and I just really wanted something that was very much you know Part and parcel of our day to day air that we breathe. It was part of the fabric of the business. And actually it was Richard Branson who told me about B Corp because I, um, and I researched it and it was just in the US at the time. And they said, look, we're thinking about make, being able to bring it over to the UK. And I said, well, great. When you do, please let me know. I'm I'm super interested. And we were one of the founding members of B Corp in the UK. Fantastic! Because giving to charity and being charitable and standing for something and wanting to make a difference, you do need a structure around it. Um, so it doesn't just become something that you do at Christmas. It's, you know, it's in everything that we do, just, you know, from the sort of housekeeping stuff, like the kind of light bulbs we use. You'll notice nobody has a bin because we have recycling places in the kitchen, so people have to stand up and put their stuff in so Mm, it all gets recycled. That's a good tip. Lots of... Tons of things like that to, you know, not coming back with empty lorries once the delivery has been done. So the people we work with, we've encouraged them to become B Corps and to also look at their, their um, environmental footprint. But also the raising money, the the making a difference and it being, as I said, part of our daily lives. I think that's, that's something that has really made a difference to also the people we recruit, the team who are here, the volunteering that we do. Um, it's, it's all exciting. good,
0: isn't it? it? The whole thing is good. Mm. Tell me what the biggest difference you think um, you had to make in order to become a B
1: Corp what was that sort of mm. was it packaging or the the? or were you already no, on that journey? we were already on that journey so we don't produce um, I think it's something like 80% of our packaging is either compostable which is amazing or recyclable and that was the case from day one you know I was paranoid about creating more kind of mess and rubbish and all the rest of it in the world and I wanted the business to you know, to be very environmentally friendly from 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 the start, the biggest difference I think is our team. You know, they love being part of a business that is the B Corp business, and so. You know, there's always something going on. We're raising money pretty much every month for something or other. Um, I think the hardest thing was um, it could could, be, could have been the bins actually, because everyone's complains about having to get up and walk to the kitchen. Um, <laughs> um, it was persuading the board. I think that you know this was this was not just a sort of you know. Sandal nice wearing. thing to do. Yes, exactly. and yes. this wasn't going to hold us back. That this was actually a very positive step forward. So at the time that we were raising some finance, actually, so I remember saying to to the uh, P firm that we ended up using, I just want you to know that this is a non negotiable. And they're like, Yes, yes, that's fine. That's okay. We were into that. <laughs>
0: I love how you're using your business in every way to do good, from your partnerships with charities to your brand values, how you're treating your team, your recyclable packaging to your products that give back. I remember seeing your limited edition Pride Food full of Mm -hmm. love and pride with the beautiful rainbow illustration on the front and Mm -hmm. thinking, wow, this is a business, I mean, I just love even more, where 75p from the sale of every tin tasty beef dinner for dogs went to international charity stonewall you could have just been a business selling organic dog food and yet now you're standing for so so much more you have b corp within your organization you've built this team for now over 85 people is that right um we are slightly less now it's more like um 65 65 people well do you ever look back and think sliding doors moments where you know there must have been times where the sales weren't coming in or things were rough Mm. or you know tough and yet you've stuck true to something Mm. and now you're here reflecting and looking back and of course you know we're not talking about whatever's on your today to-do list (laughs) which is you know shit sitting the fan somewhere but I'm just (laughs) talking generally you know if you look back you know you've really created something
1: that is a force of good well, thank you. I mean, it's it's very kind of you to say so. You know, I think uh, as a woman, firstly, and as a business owner um, and founder, you know, sometimes I'm guilty of only seeing the things that need fixing rather than all the great things that we've done. So, you know, I always need to wrap myself on the knuckles for that. I think, you know, when you're creating a product or setting up a business, I'm always saying to my team, you know, what's the story you are trying to tell here? You know, what, why are we doing this? Why are we bringing out this product? And it's a very important question because. Otherwise, you we could just be bringing out products left, right and centre and there's no opinion behind it. It's not making a difference. And so the Pride Tin, for example, the thing that I was so excited about was, was yes, we were raising money for Stonewall, but I was thrilled that Pets at Home, for example put it on their counter. So on every till point, there was a Pride tin, which would have been unthinkable even five years ago because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a mm-hmm. gay product, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for them to go, yes, actually, we're happy to do that. It's it's very hard for people to, to really remember what the, what the days were like. I mean, Pride in July this year, a couple of months ago, every single shop had rainbows in the window. And, you know, it's the sort of right on thing now, which is great. But... When we did it a couple of years ago, even, it was still a big deal to have it, um, you know, as a product displayed on the front. And when we, did, yeah, we actually did have some hate mail at the time as well. You know, why are you shoving this down my face? I'm not interested, blah, blah, blah. I will no longer be supplying you quite, you know, we had a few trolling moments. From
0: your consumers. Gosh, yeah. it's, mm. it's so important though, isn't it? And I'd love to just touch on that because I think that, you know, product has the... Uh, Mm. ability to cut through doesn't it Mm. it also gives a device for pets at home to actually talk about their values, yeah. their change. If they didn't have that for instance, you know, what were they going to do? How were they going to say that pets at home wants to support this that this is absolutely fine by them. They want to celebrate it. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing isn't it when looking at designing a product that actually it's not just your product. Think about how your product could be used mm. elsewhere. We're just right now designing up a shop independent sticker where right. we're going to get it out there into shops Mm. um, so that they have their own merchandising, Mm. you know, for instance, you know, so it's not just an an average sticker. No, this is a proud to be independent. Now that we know will spread, you know, and it's actually then becomes a bit of a marketing tool, doesn't it? And so I think that that's something that
1: we don't talk about enough, which is products are amazing marketing tools they really are and I mean and have the ability to make a difference so with with the pride tin um we also ran a a competition um within pets at home saying that we also took a, a huge pride float at the pride parade and um that we would pay for 10 people within pets at home to come to London and come and be on our pride float and so there were posters in every store saying you know would you like to win tickets to go on the Lily's Kitchen pride float so again that was really sort of getting the message out and people came from all over the country and they were so excited to be on the float with us and it was again it was a very nice team bonding day with them and one of our supplier one of our stockists um which was which was great so it's it's nice when everything marries up and you're you know you're really creating a good foundation for a product that's again not just about producing something and certainly seeing how many you can sell
0: so tell me one of my personal missions is to help empower more female entrepreneurs there's still a huge disparity in the numbers of women um starting a business against the rate of men starting businesses, especially when you compare it to America and Australia. You've been in business now 30 years, so you must have seen a massive shift. Did you experience much sexism back then when you founded Lily's Kitchen?
1: Oh, gosh. (laughs) One of the areas that I feel has not changed whatsoever, and I know this may be deeply cynical, is is the role of women in business. I mean, I have to say I get patronised relentlessly pretty much every conference I go to, I could be the only woman there, apart from the uh, the woman who's taking coats. It is incredibly common. I know sometimes that I get sent a car to pick me up, and I think, oh, this is wonderful. I've got a car to pick me up, but I don't need to worry about it. jumping on the tube. But it's to make sure that I arrive at the conference or the talk or whatever, because, oh, uh, whoops, I'm the only woman who's there. And I just find that unbelievable. I, I went to a girl's school. I went to a women's college at Cambridge. You know, I've been in business for 30 years. And I cannot believe... The progress it's just been so so slow and um i'm i'm very worried i have a daughter who's 23 and i just think god you know we need to change things much faster in this area so
0: do you think let's say areas such as we just spoke about b corp right and look at the rate that we've stopped plastic straws yes and plastic Fantastic. bags yep. quick right yes and so you know I was speaking to Emma Bridgewater last week on this podcast she was talking about all the amazing qualities that women do have as being an entrepreneur Sahar Hashimi from um, Coffee Republic said the same thing you know Emma was mm. saying how you know women's tend to ask for directions it means that actually women communicate women say well if you don't know what to do uh, you can't help me might you know someone that could help me yes. you know so we've got all these incredible qualities and Sahar was saying she even thinks it's the era of the female entrepreneur that that's what it is but tell me what really would you say are some of the things that you think
1: would change things militancy Women were very nice, and we're glad to be vulnerable, and happy for guys to sort of, you know, lead the meeting and you know all the rest of it. But it's, I think, I I'm getting to the point by the way I just think we need to become much more militant. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm saying it slightly tongue in cheek, but I'm quite serious about it. Recently, I was at an event and chatting to a guy, and he said to me, "Oh, yes, Lily's kitchen," and he said, "So, um, so, and you make it in your kitchen." This was six months ago. And I said to him, make it in my kitchen. No, I sell 50 million tins a year. My kitchen's not that big. Um, but to think that he's, he just assumed that because I was a woman running a food business, I would be making it in the kitchen. I've been referred to as a mumpreneur, which I know can be a trendy uh, word for some people, but I absolutely hate it. It's so patronizing. I can't imagine any man being happy, being described as a dadpreneur. Um, No, they would not. No, and I just, you know, the level of, just the assumptions, I think, is is what needs to, um, what needs to be pushed aside. And I think part of it is back to that first point you made around money. I think women we're ashamed when we make money, and women who win big prizes tend to give the money away because you know they i don 't know if they can't deal with, with having that much money, but I think related to, to this is is a money conversation that that women are are worried to be seen to be successful, and um, I know i am um, and, and
0: why do you think that is i was I was talking just recently about this, and I was just saying you know women saw maybe their fathers handling the money. You know, our mm. bank managers were men. You know, the adverts on TV were male. The branding of banks is male, I would say. You know, I mm. I, I feel like it's all very subconscious. And when we, I was only um, at the Telegraph Women Means Business Live yesterday and talking about the imposter syndrome, this mm. now great word to be talking about it. But actually, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to crack on. Mm. And what fuels this imposter syndrome? And I thought, I think it's about money. I think it's about legals. And I think it's about tech. Mm. You know, and because, you know, P&L, well, my husband does that. You know, um, coding. Think, um, yes. Oh, someone down the road, you know, Johnny's brother does that. You know, we tend to not just say, well, I just know absolutely F all about mm. this. Great. I'm going to learn it. And then I'll never have to feel Mm. ashamed again Mm. why is it that we just don't
1: do that well I mean you know one of the things I think is interesting I've been helping helping my school with fundraising and and various other things and you know one of the things that I said to them was you know it's sort of quite dilapidated and um, and I said you know it's because we're a girls school you know you would not go around a boys school or a mixed college and the reason is it's the same with my college at Cambridge the reason is is that women don't leave money in wills to their alma mater, you know, men tend to leave it for for theirs, you know. There's a whole seam around money and women, and um, you know, ownership of, of of your own wealth and what you spend your money on. I think that that needs tackling. I think it. I think it really is around that. You know, we can all see plenty of wealthy men who's sort of you know happy to flaunt it but but where are the women and we need we need women frankly who have done really well and who are happy to stand up and say so but there are very few if, if any really and tell me for
0: those who are listening who are at the early stages of their business maybe young business owners in the first year or five years they're listening to this mm. and they're saying you know what that's me mm. I'm not confident around the p and I do not know what EBITDA is I really still don't actually understand tax I'm saying it out loud yeah. because you know we were all there and you know not everyone understands it still tell me just about how you tackled that yourself and 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 how what advice you would give to people mm. Listening Because I think think we we, right now we could be cracking a bit of the imposter syndrome, (laughs) you and me, on this podcast. You know, should we try that?
1: Well, I think what women should ask, and I also think we need to be careful not not to assume that women don't know what that means. Because, again, it's kind of portraying women as kind of not really knowing what's going on. I think men would also be in that situation. I just think we are, you know, backwards and coming forwards. You know, we will, you know, let other people go ahead and we let guys go ahead and we won't stand up and say... You know, actually, I've, I have done really well. Look at my successes. And, you know, I know I'm, I'm guilty of that, too. Um, you just know that in meetings, it is, it's generally the guys who will, you know, swagger and talk about all their sort of wonderful things, and women will tend to hang back and just share little pieces of information. And I just think culturally, there's there's got to be a sea change. Where if women really want to be equal or even better, we need to really embrace that. And as Brené Brown says embrace any shame that we have around um, being successful and having money and and making a difference. All of it is tied together, which is why I love business, because business is about making money, but it's also about making a difference.
0: Completely agree. And I, I too also believe that you shouldn't assume women don't know about these things. My point is, working around small businesses for the last 15 years the amount of times I've heard her say my husband does the finances I am creative so I can't do that bit of the Mm, business mm. and what I want to try and say is you have to rewire because of course you can do that part of the business and business has to be the yin and yang and if you don't have both sides of it Mm. you need to make sure you do because otherwise there will be parts of your business you're not in control of or you're scared about yes it's breaking that down and however silly you feel or whatever those things Mm. are face into it.
1: And I think it's our generation. I mean, if I look at, you know, my, my niece who's just started at my school, very excitingly, um, you know, they it's completely different then. I mean, you know, they she's into tech, um, but, you know, she's learning coding, she loves maths. I think you have to start at, an, at a young age to sort of get rid of that, the, the notion that you can't learn these things or these things aren't for you. And I remember when I left school, my headmistress said to me, you've done very well. It's been, you know, you've had a wonderful career at the school. And I know that you're going to become a wonderful PA to some man one day. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the pinnacle of what I could possibly have achieved with my life. So you can imagine I was like, I'm going to show her. I'll show you, PA.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, uh, we're coming towards the end of this interview, but tell me what the future
1: looks like for Lily's Kitchen. Gosh, well, we are uh, international is very much on our radar. You know, you never know when you're launching in France or Germany or Singapore, or Japan even, you know, how consumers will react to your product. Will they love it as much as people do here in the UK? And it is lovely to see that they do. They ask different questions. So in France, you know, they want to know all about, is it backed by vets? You know, does it have the sort of scientific credentials? They're very interested in that part, which luckily our, our food is. Um, and in Japan, they love the design and, you know, they're... They've, they adore the story and the marketing piece around um, around Lily's Kitchen. So, for us, it's it's really about growing our footprint internationally and launching in these big markets and really making Lily's Kitchen a, a global brand.
0: It's quite amazing, isn't it, that you are now selling in 22 countries and it's, I'm just so proud for you that that is what's happening. It's also really inspirational. On this podcast, we were talking about international with Donna Wilson and she just said, well, I never even looked at it like that. What I did is I found Donna Wilson fans all over the world because we're humans." And I then just gave them my goods, you know, and I said, "Well, that's going international, you know." And it's, so yes. it's the same for you. Mm. You're, you're finding your Lily Lily's Kitchen fans in Japan. Of course, there will be, yes, and going out there. And I think mm. that's another message I'd love people to listen to, which is, mm. you know, go out, explore. Mm. Your
1: product is going to be loved elsewhere as well. Yep, and it's such a great, uh, you know, it's a wonderful point you make because if you if you are selling to fans, then it just the product will just fly actually very unusually for an FMCG brand we sell in independence and vets and grocery and online so it's quite unusual to cover all bases and we really take care of our independents to make sure that you know we help them set up windows or Christmas displays but when you're t- talking to somebody who's a shop owner that you know their whole life is is there and their income is their shop having somebody who is a, a fan of your product you know you're just in a relationship with them and it is just beautiful you know you they call you up you know who they are it's you know you can really take care of them you send them lots of extra things and you know that kind of old-fashioned aspect of, of a business is also wonderful as well as all this of high-tech kind of anonymous you know e-commerce buying where you're never going to meet the customer is wonderful to have you know all aspects of your business so that you you're hitting consumers at, at different points through through a fan base. Gosh,
0: we're coming to the end of this interview and I always use the analogy that running your own business is like being on some crazy roller coaster. (laughs) You would have Lily sitting next to you, um, maybe not liking the roller coaster so much. Um, Tell me what one of your biggest lows has been since running Lily's Kitchen.
1: Um, In terms of lows for me personally, it's a... um... If you lose people um, in your team who you don't want to lose, you know, that's that's always a blow, not just to me, but for the rest of the team. Or, you know, you recruit somebody who perhaps hasn't worked out, that's also low because it takes so much time to then fill that role and, you know, the damage that's been done. I think probably I have to say around people that, 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 that that's been my most um, hair-tearing moments. Because um, it's, you know, and that's,
0: again, something maybe that um, it's not spoken about enough, you know, people the 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 structure of your business is people and get a make or break make and break you know get the wrong person in there and it can cause a lot of damage and I think again women you know once you know you've got to act quickly and it is that thing that great that we're women and we communicate fantastically and we're empathetic but when people need to exit Mm. a business You know,
1: you now need to act on that. You can't always be nice, keep everybody happy. Well, I just think, you know, it's back down to the woman thing. I'm sorry I'm beating the same drum, but I actually think, you know, when I look at some of the recruits that that hasn't worked out, I think, you know, they've had an issue with working for a female boss, which is a horrible thing to say. Yes yes because really yes if you come from a sort of hierarchical male dominated industry and you're not used to a woman being the boss then it's 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 very hard I think men can find it quite difficult um Mm. and you know that I've certainly had that experience
0: I say really (laughs) I've been there (laughs) (laughs) what am I saying really for (laughs) I mean yes and conversely the greatest high Lily's got like wind in uh, the ears and the ears
1: are <laughs> fluttering around. What's been your greatest high? Oh, wow. Um, well, when we do some great product launches, I think that's great. I mean, we had, we had a brilliant thing last week. I don't know if you heard about it, but we launched a house, uh, house of treats for dogs. And it was a pop-up for three days. And we basically created a dog's dream home. So there was the laundry that they could get into. There was a bubble bath with bacon-flavored bubbles sort of puffing out. There was a spa massage area. There was a walk in the woods. With, and, you know, people would just come in with their dogs and just adore it they would just love it and they said this is like soft play but for dogs <laughs> why hasn't
0: anybody thought of this beforehand and your
1: brain's going uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's it really comes down to those conversations you have at crafts of the customer who you know is in tears saying thank you for saving my dog's life they are worth everything everything because you know I just know how much that dog means to you and it's a privilege being part of that that person's experience
0: experience and someone that maybe I could interview someone that's inspired you that you think maybe I could interview on this podcast
1: Goodness, well, um Gwyneth Paltrow that's always a um a, a great example. I love what she's done with goop. I know she gets a lot of flack, but she actually... does tell me i've never heard a fan Oh, so tell I'm me a about... fan. I because I just think you know it's so crazy and out there some things, but actually there's a lot of great information there, and you know okay, you may not be able to. I may not be able to spend, you know, £2,000 on something. But amongst that, there's this great, Jane you know, she's been talking about the menopause, even the conscious uncoupling piece. Actually, I think she's a, she is a great role model. And I think, you know, we shouldn't be bashing her too much because she's she is breaking down barriers. And I know how hard that is. It's painful. It's horrible. You're on your own. Everyone's laughing at you. And, you know, and I, I respect anybody who breaks down barriers.
0: What a good recommendation. Thank you so much. What fascinating insights you shared. And I know there is so much love for your business from humans and dogs and cats. (laughs) But you have disrupted an industry despite being laughed at. And you've really proven them wrong. And that headmistress as well. (laughs) Um, Multi-million pound business that I know will go from strength to strength. And It has just been such an honour. You are exceptional and you're a role model for us. And, you know, keep doing what you're doing and talking about these issues such as women in business, because we have got to do something about Mm. it, you know get breaking those ceilings or whatever they say and glass ceilings, all this sort of stuff. But I think you're the woman for the job. So (laughs) I'm I'm going to be backing you. It's that time at the podcast where I now hand over. It's a letter to your younger self. Mm -hmm. But can I just say thank you um, for today for sharing part of your soul? And it's just an honour.
1: Thank you so much, Holly. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So this is a letter to my 11-year-old self. Dear Henrietta, I understand that right now things are looking pretty bad. Do not despair. I know you've been dealt a multitude of tragic events in a very short space of time, before you've even become a teenager. But don't give up. I know things seem really hard and pointless at this moment, but you have so much life and love in you to give that you can't spend forever feeling sorry for yourself and angry at the world. Losing both your parents, becoming a refugee and being adopted. That's a lot for a 12-year-old. But don't be a victim of what has happened to you. No one's going to come and rescue you. But this is what will make you who you are. Someone who doesn't give up. You're going to make a big difference in the world. There's adventure and excitement ahead too. You can do it. Don't be ashamed of what happened. It wasn't your fault. You'll be very independent and won't be one to follow the crowd. Your losses have made you a braver, stronger person and made you trust your instinct. You're not just a survivor. You're someone who will learn that being vulnerable is an asset. It's the key to being creative and innovative. You'll create businesses that break the mould and stand for something because of who you are. Your sense of fairness and justice will mean that you'll always take care of people who are loyal and on your side. Birds of a feather flock together. Your kindness for others will guide you through your life and all the decisions you'll be making. Having gone through so much pain at such an early age means that you're incredibly empathetic. You're tough, too. What doesn't break you makes you. It means you demand a lot of yourself and of others. You're like a human comet, driven and unstoppable. You'll never accept no as an answer, which is why being an entrepreneur has been the perfect role for you. Seeing what needs fixing and transforming persuading and enrolling others in your wish to make the world a better place. Trying to break down barriers and prejudices, challenging the status quo, it's what you love doing. Being out of your comfort zone was what happened and you have turned this into a positive. Your life will be full of breakthroughs and a few breakdowns too, but don't be afraid to make mistakes. You'll have lots of bumps in the road, but you can't learn and grow unless you go over them. You don't always have to work twice as hard to prove your worth. Don't feel guilty about taking some time out when you need to. Working so hard to set up businesses has meant that you couldn't always make the time you wanted to for your family and friends. You're not on your own, though. Remember, there are lots of wonderful people around you who you can lean on. And one word of warning beware of experts and know it alls. They're scared of you and your free spirit. Never allow yourself to become an expert, as you'll forever be shut down to possibilities. It takes courage to stay vulnerable, and it will mean that you're open and your instinct will be strong. When it all gets too much, don't take life too seriously. It's all meaningless anyway, and we're only here for such a short time. Keep your sense of humour. You'll have a wonderful daughter and be a great mother to her. Somehow you'll have the energy to be there for her and fit in all your work commitments. You are the master of multitasking. You'll marry an incredibly caring woman who will be able to share the joys and the burdens. You'll create a new family which will include a dog that will change your life and the life of many others. And always remember what your mum told you. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again
0: just you know
1: <laughs> what can I say
0: just an extraordinary human being and I just I just I think about my ro- my job if this is a job and how lucky I am to know someone like you and just the courage that you show and how you've used that pain and what you've gone through breaking all those barriers and you've, you've built something and your parents must be so, so proud of you. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. If you enjoyed this episode with Henrietta Morrison, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Katie Empke, founder of Fine Cell Work, a woman who's helped redefine what we think of prisoners as they learn to embroider. You can find Katie's interview by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.